Our uh, guest that I would like to uh, welcome uh, is Ms. Uh, Aida Moradi Ahani. Uh, she gave a wonderful talk here two days ago in Persian. Some of you who missed it really missed a very, very singularly good talk. And uh, uh, Ms. Moradi uh, happens to be also in one of the two books that uh, uh, our speaker tonight, uh, Salara Abdo, has just uh, published. One of them is a collection of uh, uh, noir writing uh, called Tehran Noir, and Ms. Moradi is one of the writers uh, included in that uh, collection. Uh, we have two events coming up. They're both mentioned on this. I'm not going to go over them. Please pick up one of these on your way out. Uh, we have a film uh, about modern Iranian history and uh, Mossadegh, uh, Peter Frond, Nasser Rahmani Najat. And then on Tuesday, that one is on Thursday. On Tuesday, we have uh, Sasha Polakov-Soransky, uh, who has a book on uh, the nuclear program in South Africa, uh, based on a lot of uh, archival research, based on uh, Israeli archival research and uh, South Africa archival research about that program. It is a very, very interesting book. He'll be talking about his book on uh, Tuesday. Uh, Tonight's uh, speaker, Salare Abdo, is a very dear old friend of mine. I think I have now known him for almost 40 years. Uh, I, I first met him uh, as he was wandering in the streets of uh, Berkeley on Telegraph Avenue. I think he remembers uh, we were at the time in one of the only uh, places in California that served uh, gourmet coffee. This was before gourmet coffee became a yuppie predilection. Uh, at that time, Mediterranean was the only place that served gourmet coffee. Uh, and uh, he has truly uh, established himself as one of uh, the singular Iranian writers writing in English. Uh, his uh, four published books, uh, five, uh, four of them are truly remarkable in terms of the genre, in terms of the power of the narrative, in terms of his ability to uh, write a beautiful phrase and uh, plot a beautiful story. Uh, his first major novel was uh, almost prophetic. It was called The Poet Game, and it predicted essentially uh, the uh, radical attack on New York, the Islamist terrorist attack on New York. Uh, the book was something of a sleeper till the attack happened, and then when people found out that some Iranian writer had said basically that Islamic terrorists are going to come to New York and blow up these buildings, uh, it, the book got a new uh, life, although it was initially published by one of the best publishers in the English language. I think uh, the publishing house uh, started by T.S. Eliot was uh, the publisher of his first book, Faber and Faber. Uh, his opium book called Opium, not his opium, the book called Opium, uh, talks about the opium trade uh, on the uh, borders between Iran and Afghanistan. And his last two novels, uh, two works, one is Tehran at Twilight, and the other one is Tehran Noir. Tehran Noir is a collection of essays, uh, short stories written in the spirit of a noir writing. And Tehran at Twilight is a remarkable, uh, in my view, a remarkable novel that describes the underbelly of Iran, uh, in a way that only someone like him can write, someone who has two feet, one in this country, one in uh, 
Tehran. He travels to Tehran often. He is the director of the MFA creative writing program at uh, uh, City College of New York, the campus at Harlem. Uh, he is uh, the definition of an Iranian cool, hip, noir writer. So, Mr. Salar Hi. Um, thank you for having me here. Um, I haven't known Dr. Milani for as, as many decades as he mentioned, but almost. Um, I want to pay him a special tribute right now because I really have known him for quite a long time going all the way back to the days when I was but a runt of an undergrad student in Berkeley. Uh, I recall one time when I was just starting to get my feet wet as a writer back in those days. I'd written a short story that we'd published in one of those fly-by-night literary journals that the Persians used to put together back in those days. I remember the encouragement Dr. Milani gave me even then. High praise from a man whose words were gold to me, and they really were. Whether writing literary criticism or on culture, religion, history, politics. Soon I would leave the Bay Area behind to find my own place in the world. I wanted adventure and a writerly life. And that yearning took me to many places and many people. But I always kept up with Dr. Milani and his work. And I have to say that in a world, and particularly in a field, filled with its share of quacks and imposters, and there are not a few, this man has always been a breath of fresh air for me to listen to and to read. And tonight, I'm honored to be here at his invitation and also yours. Um, having said that, I need to get that orange flask. Um, I wasn't sure what to read to you tonight. Obviously, there are the two books. Uh, Tehran at Twilight is my own novel. It's about several things, but perhaps the main theme of Tehran at Twilight is about the friendship of two men two Iranians who grow up here, but whereas one of them ends up staying and becoming a college professor like me, the other returns to the Middle East and turns into a rabid anti-American. The story is really about the limits of friendship with the recent American wars in the region as a backdrop. Tehran Noir the anthology that Dr. Milani mentioned uh, is a collection of basically crime fiction that I commissioned, edited, and translated from Iranian authors, just about all of whom live in Iran. In this anthology, I was after hardcore realism something that I feel has been severely missing in the world of Iranian fiction for too long, for several reasons. And I touch upon why that is in my introduction to the anthology. 
but I've decided not to read from either of these two books right now although we can talk about them at length after I read what I'm about to read to you rather I'll read from a recent essay that kind of reveals what I've been involved in these days and where my life and writing is taking me now in many ways this essay also complements the two books and shows my various preoccupations it is titled Gilad, which is someone's name. So I'll just read that to you. <clears throat> An endless escalator scales one of the entrances to the Imam Ali shrine in Najaf, Iraq, to the shrine complex itself. Down below, Shiite refugees from the Tel Afar region in the far north near Mosul are temporarily sheltered. Majid, my partner, and I stand around with a young Iraqi film crew on assignment for an Iranian television channel. The heat, 118 degrees in the shade, seems to turn everything into an abstraction, removed and unapproachable. Naturally, I think about American soldiers, the battles that were fought here in the past decade, in 2003, 2004, 2007. I think about their uniforms and all the gear they had to carry in this furnace. And perhaps one reason that I think about them is this. Even on my Iranian passport, it says that I'm a resident of the United States, place of issue, Washington, D.C. This is just another typical dual frame of reference, of course. Nothing new about that. Yet in a time of war, sometimes you long for more clarity and a definite sense of belonging somewhere. <clears throat> Looking at Majid, who is an Arab-Iranian documentarian of war from southwestern Iran, I know that this is something he has wrestled with all of his life. Iran and Iraq fought a bitter eight years war long before American boots ever tramped across these grounds. To have been an Arab then and for a long time afterwards meant having your loyalty questioned at every turn. Another Arab Iranian, a writer, tells me that during his army service they would often lock him away, essentially hide him, during visits from commanders who had lost men at the front lines. Identity, however, is channeled through a multiplicity of platforms, and race happens to be just one of them. To be in southern Iraq now in Najaf and Kufa, both staunch Shia cities during a civil war when Shia and Sunni Muslims, not to mention Kurds, are essentially fighting an endgame over this land. One feels a certain relief at being with one's own co-religionists. This relief comes with a price, though. You ask yourself, so this is what it has come down to? Can I really be this glad to be safely tucked inside Najaf and Kufa with fellow Shia instead of being 40 miles out in that inhospitable desert where bullets and knives await whoever happens to have the wrong first name? Yes is the answer. 
on that long escalator ride at Imam Ali, there's plenty of time to give oneself over to such thoughts. I look at Maja's pensive face again, looking back at me from a few steps up, and I know he's thinking the same thing. We're thankful to be here amongst our own and to be safe. And yet, for those of us who occupy two worlds, at least on paper, there's always that sense that things could fall apart any minute. Even here, one of two passports that you own could be taken away, or maybe both passports. Somebody might see through your fraudulence, your lack of commitment, your unconscious bad faith. We are here to film the volunteer Shiite fighters organizing to defend their homes and families against ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. There are of course absurdities that usually accompany such end of wars. This morning, for instance, in our semi-decrepit hotel room, it dawned on Majid that if he managed to go north with the men, we may be asked as their Iranian guests to lead one of the prayers. We both know how to pray in private and quietly, but we're certainly no experts. <clears throat> what if I recite something incorrectly? What if I misplace a word or forget a segment? This pushes me to frantically Google the Shiite prayer in order to make sure I have it down cold before I go anywhere. But there's also this. I find my googling of the Shiite prayer not as something hilarious to laugh at afterwards with friends and readers. This is not one of those humor travel accounts. Way too many people have died here on these battlefields in the past several decades. And I myself am too close to the subject. I'm not some unattached traveler slumming it in the Middle East, rather precisely because I'm an Iranian. I must get things right, show respect, cover all the bases. Ten days after those everlasting escalators at Imam Ali's shrine, Imam Ali, who is the first Imam of the Shia and the namesake of my father, one of my brothers, a nephew, an uncle, and any number of cousins and second cousins, again I find myself at a place of worship this time inside a synagogue in the Iranian capital, Tehran, on a late Saturday morning listening to, listening to one of the community leaders giving a brief talk against, of all things, palm readers and fortune tellers. When the congregation gets ready to pray, I am politely asked to leave because they don't want the authorities to wrongly assume there is any proselytizing going on in here. I only have to walk across the street from the synagogue to be inside my own apartment. Chance has it that the research I have been doing for a few years with a colleague at the City College of New York about a group of Polish Jews who were saved in Tehran during World War II has brought me to this very synagogue that happens to be directly across from my home in the heart of Tehran. The locals have just shown me where the Poles used to sleep in the basement of the synagogue and where they built their own annex for prayers next to the main building. For a writer and researcher, it is an incredible stroke of good fortune to find that which they've been looking for to be right under their nose. It's also a bit discombobulating because as a constant traveler in the world, 
As someone who must frequently negotiate more than one place and identity, you also learn that accidents can happen, and those accidents are not always so fortunate. Excuse me. A mere few days after my synagogue visit in Tehran, I was in, again in the air, this time back to New York, where a backlog of work and people to see was waiting. On a bus to Boston to see another writer friend from Iran who had been given a much deserved and appreciated residency at Harvard Radcliffe, I received a sudden text message from my research colleague, Michal. We had not communicated much through the summer, a time when we were both usually in the Middle East, she in Tel Aviv and I in Tehran. I had been eager to tell her more about the synagogue visit and its association with the Jewish refugees of World War II. Michal's father and aunt happened to have been two of those Polish Jewish children who had been saved in Iran before being sent on to mandatory Palestine. But her text stopped me cold. <clears throat> the latest war between Israel and Hamas had been going on for a while now. And a close relative, a young man named Gilad, all of 19 years old, had been shot and killed by a sniper bullet in one of the Gaza tunnels. I knew quite a bit about this Gilad. After years of working on the same book project, Michal and I were more than just colleagues. We knew close details about each other's lives and our families. And ironically, since both of us are Middle Easterners and spend major chunks of each year in our respective cities, we have a distinct understanding and experience of the world that is hard, if not impossible, to share with most of our American associates in academia. Michal wrote in her follow-up text message, My family is in ruins. Things will never be the same after this. In that Greyhound bus to Boston, the numbness I had begun to feel from this news slowly turned into a feeling of hopelessness. Iranian friends had been posting increasingly graphic images of death and destruction in Gaza in the past days. Sometimes these postings seem more like a game of one-upmanship to show who can post the most terrible images to convey the suffering. One particular image of a young boy with his brain spilled out from the back of his head had kept me, kept me from revisiting Facebook for some time. And now Michal had written to me about Gilad. In this strange, topsy-turvy world of writers and academics and immigrants, where a man from Tehran and a woman from Tel Aviv might end up teaching in the same English department in a university in New York, I now actually knew an Israeli boy who had been killed in this latest war over there. I had seen his photograph and I knew who his grandfather was, Michal's stepfather. What, if anything, to do with this information? I could not share it with my sea of Iranian friends back in Tehran because it would mean little to them and two, they would confront me with the usual question, had I seen the latest body counts from Gaza? 
Needless to say, over the years, Michal and I had had our share of discussions, sometimes heated, about all of this. But knowing a person who gets killed, a person who is not just a number and a statistic to you, changes a lot of things. Or maybe it changes just one thing, perspective. I called Majid back in Tehran. Majid, my Arab collaborator with whom I'd been doing, with whom I'd been in Najaf only two weeks ago. He was set to go back into Iraq for a long stretch of filming at the front lines. Don't get killed, I said, sounding ridiculous to myself and also melodramatic. But I had to say this, and he laughed his sleepy laugh eight and a half hours ahead in Tehran and told me not to worry. I've been doing this a long time, long before you and I started working together, Salah. It wasn't much, but I had to accept it. The other side of living in two worlds is that oftentimes you feel a sense of complete ineffectiveness. Add to that a measure of guilt. In Boston, on the peaceful and immaculately kept Harvard Radcliffe lawn, I asked my writer friend Hossein what he thought about living here in Cambridge. Paradise, he said. These people are living in paradise. They are lucky that way. The universe has been good to them. Here was a man who had had to fight in the Iran-Iraq war. Later on, he'd written an award-winning novel about which, about it, which in turn had gotten him blacklisted back home and unable to publish for the last decade. The one year of peaceful residence in Cambridge was not, nothing less than a lifeline for him, as I suppose teaching for me and Michal is in New York. Still, often I get asked how it feels to return to New York from the places I've been. Is it a culture shock, people ask? It's more than that, I think. One's investments are simply too deep for it to just to be a culture shock. Mine in Tehran, Michal's in Tel Aviv, Majed's in the Khuzestan province where he was born during an Iraqi bombing raid. Our friend Mustafa in Najaf who had had his nails pulled at 16 in one of Saddam's torture chambers and that man in Khan Yunus who lost 26 members of his family in a missile attack during Ramadan. So, whenever I'm asked how it feels to be back, I return to details, to exact moments and emotions in particular places, to Najaf and that warm sense of shelter and security under Imam, Imam Ali escalators, to Tehran, where, as late as 2014, the lights at the local synagogue burned brightly several times a week. Or to that feeling of dread and powerlessness while riding a bus to Boston and telling Majid to watch his back as he prepares to re-enter the front lines in Iraq. Above all, I think of individuals. I think of their names, faces, and photographs. And I think of Gilad. Thank you. So I didn't read from the books, but there it is. This is kind of what I'm doing now. Um, I don't have anything more to add, but if you have questions, here I am.
research into the Polish Muslims who were held by Persians? I want to start by saying that this whole thing serendipitously was started by that gentleman over there, Abbas Milani. Uh, my colleague and I, several years ago, we, uh, uh, we were talking and, and uh, I found out that uh, her father and aunt had been two of the, what they call the Tehran children. And these were basically, these were about 800 Jewish Polish kids who, after many, many Poles came to Iran, about 120,000 of them. And they had a tremendous effect on Iranian culture of that time in World War II. The numbers vary. It could be less than 120,000, it could be more. But uh, basically what happened was after uh, the Germans invaded, a lot of Poles uh, escaped to Russia and uh, they ended up uh, in Stalin's gulags. And uh, then when the Germans attacked Russia and broke the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, uh, Stalin released these people. And they sort of uh, uh, just any way they could, by walking, whatever, however they could, they started coming south. <clears throat> and then they, they ended up in places like Uzbekistan and I've been to all the places they were at, and I researched it at length. Uh, and uh, so the, the Anders army was forming at that time, uh, uh, it was, which basically joined the British forces and they were instrumental in the North Africa campaign, but particularly Italy. So a lot of these people, what happened, they, it's, it's amazing what trials these people went through and some of these you know like my friends uh, my colleagues uh, father and aunt they were, these were kids you know and in Tehran today if you go to the Jewish cemetery there is a Polish section and, the, uh, and which I visited and you know these graves are you know like one-year-old, two-year-old, five-year-old. Imagine like, you know, you're a kid and you're, you're in Stalin's gulags in World War II and then you come thousands of miles and then you go to the port of Krasnovodsk on the Caspian Sea and you, um, you come, you end up in what was then Bandar Pahlavi, today's Anzali. And then, um, so I've read a lot of these accounts of the Poles, not necessarily Jewish, and I found some Poles and I interviewed them. There's particularly one lady in Tehran still. And um, they really talk about the kindness of Persians as opposed to everything that they had been used to until then. But to go back to what you asked is uh, at that time when we became aware that you know we could do this, I turned her attention to an article Dr. Milani had written about the Tehran children as an answer to this ridiculous uh, 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 
article some journalists had written about Iranians and their, you know, like as if we're congenitally anti-Semitic. And Dr. I, uh, Milani very correctly argued that you have no idea what you're talking about, but more, more so than that, here is the case of the Tehran children. So, uh, so I followed uh, that, I've been following that, and now the project is coming to its end. I've actually finished writing my end of it, which is far less than my colleagues. And uh, it's one of the bright, shining moments for me in, in Persian history, actually. Uh, it's not that, you know, Iranians, uh, from all the archives uh, I've looked at, and I haven't looked at that many because actually the best archive of all about that history is right here at Hoover Institute, ironically, yeah. And I called Hoover, I wrote to Hoover, the Polish um, uh, the person in charge, and I said, look, there's about 5,000 documents in Iran today, declassified documents. Do you guys want it? You know, like, you'll have to buy it, you know, but they didn't take, they didn't take it, but I think they should, because it's a part of the history that they've been, but the archives, the, the richest archives about the, that history is actually right here in, in uh, Stanford. But that all really started, I mean, I really, when I say I owe this gentleman a lot, that, you know, I, all my year, all these decades I've gone back to him, he's been a source of uh, uh, inspiration and this project also, uh, the Tehran Children Project, which for me was, is a really important because, and I write, uh, I write in uh, the book, I, one reason, my, one of the reasons it was important for me to write this book was this book was started at the darkest days of the Ahmadinejad years, the absolute darkest days. And, uh, uh, you know, this guy was going around denying the Holocaust left and right. And for me, this was actually a, a personal uh, <laughs> crusade, if you will, to show that, hey, not only you're full of it, but actually Iran had played a big part a huge part, not a huge part, but it was definitely a history that affected Iran in, um, in a great way. And it, it, it affected Iranian culture in many ways, too, because suddenly, beyond the Jewish question, because suddenly, you know, you had these women who were in Tehran working as doctors, pharmacists, uh, and uh, marrying sometimes into the homes of the wealthy and teaching them how to do modern makeup or how to wear modern clothes. So it really, I mean, our book is not about that, but that's actually for scholars, and I'm not a scholar, but for scholars, that's really rich material to work with about the effect. I mean, Khosrow uh, Sinai, many years ago, about in the mid-70s, he made a film called uh, Something Requiem, I don't remember what it's called. The Lost Requiem. He, he, wrote, he made the, the Lost Requiem about the Poles in Iran. But, uh, but there, I think 
particularly with those declassified documents. And with the declassified documents, when you examine them, you see that the Iranian, you know, government had a, you know, like you'll see like, you know, the guy from the, mini from the foreign ministry actually goes and visits these Polish Jewish children who are being, you know, some of them are being kept. They were in camps, but some of them were actually the Jewish population of Tehran helped them tremendously. And there are, there are records of that. And so it's like a, for me, it was a beautiful personal thing. I had a, I had little, I mean, my part of the portion of the book, obviously, was far less than my colleagues uh, because it was her family. But it actually opened up a whole new world to me that I didn't know existed. You, uh, if it's okay with you, a more general question. Mm -hmm. um, Iranian women in diaspora uh -huh. have written a lot, mm -hmm. and they're mainly uh, life narratives, various kinds biographies, autobiographies, prison memoirs, travel narratives. Iranian men, including yourself, have written beautiful uh, books, but less life narratives. Mm. Why do you think, one, and two, how much of your work is autobiographical? Mm. <coughs> uh, I'll start with the second question first. Uh, Tehran at Twilight, there's a lot of autobiography in there. I mean, it's about characters who, you know, kind of live a certain kind of a life and you know they do things that maybe many people don't do it's not necessarily my life but it's you know it's people I've known uh, who kind of you know they have that romantic notion of you know if you want to be a writer you have to go out there and do dangerous things or whatever it's I don't suggest it but I've known I know guys like that and the guy I mentioned in this essay he's you know, he's kind of like they're ad adrenaline seekers. But also, uh, there are many other things that happen in that book, for instance. There are many sub-themes. And, uh, you know, as a writer, I always question people's motivations about everything. Even people who are out there s supposedly doing good things, fighting for people's rights, whether it's the green movement or women's rights or whatever. Uh, because, you know, who knows why people do the things they do? So, in that book, the, there is a there is a journalist who goes out of her way, for instance, to um, to be imprisoned by in the Islamic Republic for a while, thinking that you know if I get thrown in jail for a while, you know I'll, I'll sell, I'll write a book, you know, and you know when maybe win a Pulitzer. I, I know people like that. They exist. We joke about them in Tehran all the time. And, but it's sad. It's just depressing. I know filmmakers who are like that. Uh, I know university professors who are like that. So as a writer, I have to, if I'm honest with myself, I want to know, 
I want to write about that. I want to go. To be, I want to write about the motivations behind the motivations, right? So, and the best way to tap into that is, is to tap into myself. But it's not necessarily my life. It's like a conflation of lives that I know, uh, and that's that. About the narratives, it's a, it's a really good question, and it should be a subject of an essay or a book. Uh, I think when, uh, after the revolution, uh, and Iranians came here, um, first of all, I think uh, if women just had a lot of narratives to tell that had been bottled up for a long, long time, right? Uh, and I think also from what I've seen, you know, like the gentlemen, a lot of times they're just busy doing other things, being engineers or whatever it is that they do. And, uh, you know, I often find myself when I'm on panels, when uh, in any situation, you know, uh, it, it'll be me and like three or four other Persian writers, all of whom are women, they're all usually my friends, and, uh, and but I think, uh, and I think, uh, mm, it, this has been written about, I think the first wave of people who started writing, they just needed to get their personal narratives out, the things they went through in the revolution, and stuff like that, and, you know, in, in order to, not, not that personal narratives are less sophisticated than the realm of fiction, but it's something that needed, they needed to, we needed to graduate from that realm to the realm of, uh, to the realm of fiction. And it took time to do that. But if you look at it now, today, uh, there's much more fiction going on. And the, the memoir, the memoir phenomenon kind of, kind of became uh, uh, yeah, it became saturated. Uh, uh, it still gets written, uh, but uh, not to the degree that it was. And uh, my my next move for Tehran Noir, the other book, the anthology, was that. Uh, uh, I looked around. Uh, there's been a lot of talk, you know, in, in, in especially in academia here uh, about you know the the great state of Persian fiction and stuff. And I disagree. I don't think Persian fiction has been very good ever, uh, going back to the people that are supposed to be great. Uh, but I I particularly had a lot of issues. Uh, with the state of uh, Persian letters that I talk about in the uh, in the introduction to that book, because oftentimes it's been blamed on censorship, but I think that's not really the case. I think is there's been an intellectual laziness amongst Iranian writers that has allowed them to use the crotches of things like the French Nouveau Roman, uh, Russian formalism. I'm not going to get into details of why these have been crutches. Uh, and a sort of a derivative magical realism that uh, just doesn't move me at all. 
Uh, and I thought, you know, there's a lot of stories to be told in this country. This country is just bursting with stories and nobody's written, writing them. And every time you say something, they talk about, you know, censorship or this or that. And I started talking to writers and I realized a lot of writers who win the big awards, like the Gold Shiri Award and stuff, so, you know, describe this building to me, describe so-and-so's face, and I realized they couldn't do it. They simply did not have the skill to do it, and there was no one ever there to tell them you can't do it. So I thought, all right, here's where we start. <laughs> we'll start with, uh, with a workshop with these writers. But I knew I had to go beyond the writers. One of the lovely young writers of uh, the collection is here, Aida. But and there's some several other well-known writers in the collection but I wanted to go beyond just writers I wanted to, I have a lot of friends out there in the in journalists you know crime beat writers uh, war reporters uh, and all of these people have incredible stories to tell and I thought you know one way to get past this that past this wishy-washy minimalism or magical realism uh, is to get people to write about real subjects just to just to lay it out there the kind of symbology that's been the norm you know uh, you know God bless them there was a there were a couple of workshops for a long time in Iran but uh, and they did some good things but one of the things they did that I don't think was so good was uh, they emphasized uh, you know if you're gonna write something don't say it straight up you know use symbols so I was I was working with really well-known writers and said well who shot that who shot the bullet you know this is a crime fiction who shot it he said well I wanted to leave it vague I said why do you want to leave it vague I want to know who shot the who shot the weapon or for instance uh, there was a absolute absolutely no attention to the details of uh, uh, you know they would jump from one scene to another without making a bridge uh, and no transitions. Nobody has ever talked to them about, hey, you, you need to have transitions. You know, there's such a thing called transitions. And all, it was all about symbology. Symbology is not a bad thing to me. Uh, magical realism is not a bad thing to me. Minimalism is not a bad thing to me. There's been great writers out of all these realms. But I was trying to get people to like write about Tehran in, in the in the hard-boiled realism that exists, that, that that city is. And I think we succeeded. We succeeded, and it wasn't my success, it was the success of the writers. I mean, the publisher said some of the... I sent to the writers a couple of days ago one of the latest reviews of it. I said, you know, we haven't been getting reviews for these, uh, because they've done a lot of cities around the world, like this ever, for any city. It's because Tehran is an amazing place. It's, a, it's an incredibly layered place, and these stories need to be told. Now, all of that said, there is something to be said about censorship. Even I myself, once in a while when I have to write, when I write an article that's to be published in a journal in Tehran, I find myself having to think about 
censorship. I think about, will this sentence be erased? And that immediately, automatically, that, you know, constrains you. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that that's too, uh, that's not, that's a non-issue, because it really is an issue. And I have friends in this collection of Tehran Noir who've said to me, Salah, you know, after this collection, after having been allowed to write whatever I want, it's hard to me for, to go back to having to negotiate with the Ministry of whatever the hell it is. So, so you know, this is complicated, but I think Iranian writers need to, need to be more responsible about telling it like it is and not hiding behind, uh, you know, uh, it's interesting, what happened recently was this. Uh, may he rest in peace, the, the great Golshiri. He, Jafar Modaris Sadeghi, he's a writer, Iranian writer. He just gave an interview uh, about a month ago. And he said, in one of the Persian journals in Iran, and he said, one day I was passing, I ran into Golshiri on the street and he said, what is that piece of garbage you wrote, that short story, it's awful, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself. And I, a few years ago, I had to write a piece, an article about Jafar Modares, and also I did a North America, the North Africa, Middle East uh, issue for uh, the journal Kalalu, and of all of, of all of uh, Jafar Modares' stories, that's the story I chose, <laughs> because it was a story that said it like it was. So it was a difference of opinion too, like what Mr. Goldshiri thought of as uh, garbage. I thought it was the best work Jafar Modares ever did. So I think. Uh, uh, to make a long story short is this, we need to have in Iran, if we're going to have serious literature, and I don't think we've arrived there yet by any means, uh, uh, if we're going to have serious literature, we need to have many, we, ha we need to have many approaches, many opinions. One, one person's workshop cannot dominate, and we need real criticism, not the kind of criticism that exists today. Uh, and we need uh, we need the fiction or literature to develop to an extent that it can develop subgenres like noir, like crime, like fiction, and stuff like that. So that was my small, you know. I, I felt like I had to pay my dues. I had to do something, and I did. But I hope that other people will pick up the slack and continue this. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, given what you've just said about your uh, kind of like, uh, I would call it fondness for realism, could you talk a little bit about your literary influences and kind of what has shaped your view on this? Sure. Um, if you gave me like a couple of hours, I'd come up with a big list for you. <laughs> but uh, but I, I'll mention a couple of people who are vastly different writers, but have affected me in profound ways. Uh, one of them is Graham Greene. And Graham Greene, I, I think, was incredible because um, 
of the way he uh, saw the world, lived 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 hard in the world. He, I'm a writer who believes in experience. Uh, one of the issues I have with my Iranian with Iranian friends in Iran is that, and I've told them that straight up. I say, you know, you guys sit in your little rooms, you go to each other's parties. There's a there's a part of you know. Tehran beyond which you never go. You never see how people live in the south side. You write about each other uh, and no wonder that you fall short a lot of the times. They don't like to hear that but I tell them. Graham Greene is an example of a person who really lived in the world and he wrote about the world uh, as, a, as a man, as a writer who had deep insights into the human condition, whether it was in Africa or Latin America or Europe. Uh, another person who is a vastly different writer is Philip Roth, the American writer. The reason I, I can't write like him, uh, but I think his prose, his insights into human psychology, uh, and his willingness to tackle some issues that people don't want to hear. He's the example of a writer who goes, who shoots for, to see the motivations behind motivations. You know, somebody will be, I don't know, spouting this seemingly excellent uh, cause. And, you know, as a writer, he'll say, you know, you're full of it. You know, you're doing this because you want to, you know, you want to look good, or you want to get girls, or boys, or whatever. You know, it's like I think a writer, writer's responsibility for me, one of it is to just show, put a mirror in front of people and say, you know, this is this is how it is. This is what we are. You know, and the best of writers do that in this world. So those are two of many, many, many influences I've had. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, going back to the theme about uh, modern Iranian kind of fiction writers falling short, uh, do you think that has to do with the, because a lot of those same writers seem to be rather successful when they write in English? They, they seem to be what? More successful when they write in English. This is my, my reading of them. Uh, is that uh, the lack of solid grounding in their native tongue, which is common to most of the modern... Like, uh, give me an example. Who's more successful writing than that? That's a good question. Writing Farsi. And the second question is, in, in your kind of uh, evaluation that the modern Persian literature is falling short, where does uh, Al Ahmad stand? Allow me not to comment on Al Ahmad. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, uh, 
about but your question about Persian. You're basically asking me a question about Persian as a language. Will it Correct. Find it as expressive as English is when you express your. Uh, I I love the Persian language, particularly the, uh, when I read the classics. Um, but there is no doubt in my mind that the house of fiction uh, uh, is such that the English language that complements it, it incredibly. One reason is the the awe-inspiring number of words that exist in English. But I think beyond that, I think this requires an essay uh, about just the structure of Persian, the way verbs place themselves, and many other things. I don't think I don't think Persian. necessarily falls short uh, for fiction or for prose writing because we've had amazing prose in the past whether it's Tariqa Beyhaqi or or the short works of Sohravardi or all of these people these people could write and they had command of language that went beyond Persian you know Arabic is certainly a language that I respect highly and uh, but uh, I think uh, we haven't had in, in Persian the kinds of uh, writers uh, who would kind of transform transform the language and bring us into a new into the new era of uh, and I don't know if it could happen. I don't. I don't like. It's easy to say we need a couple of writers who we need an Ezra Pound or this or that. It's easy to say, easier said than done. But I don't think that's happened. So I find myself, as far as wanting to write Persian, my dream is to. I have books in mind that I would like to write in Persian, but uh, it won't be easy. I think. I think it is a matter of language and also a matter of just sustaining long sentences. It's very hard to sustain that in Persian, from my experience. Maybe I'm mistaken, but the sort of long sen- sentences, for instance, that Philip Roth, as an example, sustains, or like Proust sustains in French, uh, I, I have my doubts, but I'm not a scholar, so it remains to be seen. I just want to see some great people of letters in Persian who would just really transform, transform uh, fiction and also nonfiction. Because I think I've spoken about this before. You know, you really, you really need to live in a democracy to write good nonfiction. The nonfiction you look, you read in Tehran, it's. Uh, a lot of it is sophomoric, but a lot of it's sophomoric because of the situation. You know, you just can't write about reality in a meaningful way if you're worried about being censored all the time. And so what happens is, I call it a, I call it a language of uh, blogging language. Uh, I see it all the time in Persian journals. People write as if they're writing for their friends and acquaintances. It doesn't have the gravitas that I need, and 
As far as criticism goes, I mean, that's just appalling. The set of criticism in Iran is just absolutely appalling. And uh, uh, un until we have critics who really, uh, they read a lot in Tehran. A lot of things get translated. It's not, that's not the issue. Uh, but we need people who write criticism honorably and honestly and, you know, hold writers to high standards. That has, that's not, that has not happened yet. Yeah. Yes, sir. I really enjoyed your books. Thank you. I'm really impressed with the candidness, as you said, especially in those stories. I have so many questions. First, are the writers okay now for having written so bluntly about sex, drugs, profanity, writing against, against government officials, on and on. And um, secondly, do you ever plan to uh, publish the Farsi version, the original Farsi, especially because hoping that it will influence and inspire more writers to write like that. Yeah. Even if you, I know you can't publish it in Iran probably, but it'll find its way to Iran. Um. Uh, what was the first question? <laughs> Are the writers okay? Are they oh, you yeah. Wrong? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think, you know, I, I, I live a good, maybe not half of my life, but almost half of my life in Iran. And, you know, one of the problems, one of the issues I have about some of the memoirs that get written about Iran and some of the films that get made about Iran is that they make it out to be like this, like dungeon, which it's not. You know, it's not. It's a, it's a very sophisticated society with high levels of education, and there are all thing, kinds of things going on, right? And I think in Tehran, why you see that? If it wasn't that kind of a society, you wouldn't have these stories, right? So in that, in a society like that, uh, uh, first of all. The government has bigger fish to fry. You know, they have, you know, they have other things to talk about, think about rather than, you know, who wrote this story about prostitution or the drug trade. They don't like it. You know, they're not, they're not happy about it. But you know, they're not going to go out of their way to, you know, to, or they might pull you in for questioning. I mean, some of these people in the collection, some of them have been in jail, not for writing, but for other reasons. Some of them uh, get pulled in once in a while, and it's just kind of a way of life. But it's not like, oh my God, we wrote this, and now it's the end of it. No, you know, and also, Iran has changed tremendously. I mean, you know, uh, I get pulled over in Tehran all the time because I have a motorcycle and you know you know motorcycle riders are looked down upon they're like from the lower and you know I, the cop will stop me or 10 cops sometimes stop me and I just kind of banter with them and I just get away with it and like that would never happen here <laughs> but you know it's like I'm not, I don't want to say that the Islamic Republic, like, things are okay, because they're not. But, you know, people are, and I'm not even sure if it's okay to get used to certain things. I, I don't know if that's a good thing. But people have sort of learned to negotiate things, 
and so something happens and maybe somebody applies a little pressure and then you apply a little pressure back, you know? You don't have that kind of fear that you did 20, 30 years ago. Things have changed, the society has changed. And that's also one of the things I talk about in Tehran at Twilight because one of the issues uh, I was concerned with and it just sort of came up was um, you know, let's say uh, in the 1980s, you know, you're a instrument of the regime, and you know you're you're applying that pressure in the most horrible way, right? And then 20 years later, you're a reformer. Where where does the idea of uh, 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 I mean, uh, there are people who talk about you know, uh, being uh, answerable to the things you did. And some people say, well, it's so-and-so. So where is that fine line, you know? Uh, all of those things are issues that I try to treat, at least in Tehran and Twilight. Like, where do you say, when do you say, uh, all right, so really bad things happen, but let's move on. And can you tell that to somebody who lost, you know, four of their brothers. I know people like that. Can I in good conscience say that? I don't know. These are, these are questions I, live, I have to live with every day. I have to tackle with every day. So, so um, but as far as the writers go, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's not that bad a situation, you know. And also it depends. I mean, some people like to say there's no difference between this guy and that that guy. I beg to differ. There's a huge difference with that between Rouhani and Ahmadinejad. I don't even mention Ahmadinejad's name. We're a group of Persians here, but whenever I give talks for Americans, I say that man whose name I, I don't. He's I call him. He's a dustbin of history. But uh, but uh, but there's a difference. And like if we if we don't acknowledge that, I think it's intellectual laziness. If you don't acknowledge that this society is more layered and complex and is trying to work its issues and sometimes failing miserably at it, but at least it's trying, then we're engaging in intellectual laziness. And we can't do that. You know, we need to we need to like look at individual cases, we need, to, we need to look at individuals, we need to look at circumstance, and these are deep philosophical questions. These are deep philosophical questions. And sometimes it's just hard to look in somebody's face and say, you know, let it go. Because sometimes you just can't let it go, you know. Yeah. You said you spend half of your time in New York and half in Iran. Mm -hmm. So I wonder what is home for What is home? Uh, as I grow older, I think Tehran is home, actually. Yeah. And that's very interesting to me that that's happened, because I grew up here. I, I, I didn't come here as a young child, but as a teenager. and. Uh, I think what happens is that every one of us needs to find, you know, America is, such, is a country, there's so many things going on, 
there's so much going on here and uh, you want to give yourself your life some sense of meaning right and you might find it here you might find it in you know Guatemala I don't know you know for me not just Iran but the situation in the Middle East has been something like I decided one day that that's what I want to tackle that's the issue those are the issues and these people are the things that I want to spend my time and energy on and once that decision was made then the next logical progression was that that's more of a home to me than uh, than uh, than the United States and it happens you know like I mentioned my Israeli colleague you know uh, it's the same for someone like that you know and it's it also creates a distance you know because you come from these places you know you go to Iraq or you go to Kabul and things are happening and then suddenly you you're back in New York or you go visit your friend in Harvard and uh, you know it's a, it's a you know I was I was teaching a class a workshop seminar graduate seminar last last semester and I was about to go teach and my friend called from Baghdad you know we'd, we'd been covering the battle of Jorfo uh, Sahar where the Shiite militias took back the Americans basically conceded for a decade this area 60 miles south of 60 kilometers south of Baghdad to Al-Qaeda in Iraq which what then was handed to ISIS and then these Shiite volunteers went and took it back in two days and my friend was filming it and he called me uh, as I was about to go teach and he said you know I, I was there the sniper had his you know his sight on me I moved the finger he would shoot and I didn't know what to do I smoked my last Bahman cigarette Bahman cigarettes are about this big from Iran you know and uh, I just had to decide I had to take a chance because this sniper rifle apparently the the American magazines have 15 bullets and the Russian ones have 10 and after he had shot his 10 I decided to take my chance if it had, if he had had the American magazine I'd be dead so he's telling me this and then two minutes later I have to go teach a class of graduate students about creative writing and that dissonance it kills me you so know that? why don't you live in Europe? Hmm? so why are you living well, I'm not finished here yet, but God willing, I will, uh, but not quite yet. I have things to do here, including a kid you know, I need to take care of. But that dissonance is definitely jarring, and it's, it's not just me, it's a lot of people. So what happens is that us immigrants, a lot of times, no matter where we are, you know, like... Uh, I have so much more in co co common with my Israeli colleague and that's the person who's my interlocutor in New York City rather than you know, many other people and that's kind of beautiful actually and that's the beauty of America because you come here and then there are people from all over the place you know you're not going to get that in many other places there's a homo homogeneity and uniformity in many other places and you know America despite many of the issues I have with it at the end of the day 
it gave us it gave it it embraced us you know after the revolution my dad my family and you know you can't forget that you know you might my home might be elsewhere in my mind but uh, you know I don't you know I had a debt to pay to the Iranian writers I had to do Tehran Noir and I have a debt to this country too you know I can't I can't just say oh America this America that they don't know what's going on in the world you know all of these things are you know deeply complicated issues for me and the only thing I can do is be honest with myself and not to blame anyone categorically whether it's a you know a lot of these a lot of these Shiite uh, you know American intelligence calls them terrorists I've met them maybe some of them are but a lot of them aren't they're just protecting their families uh, you know like I have to you have to I try in everything I do, whether going out there in the field or writing, I just try to find that core of honesty. And that's what I was trying to say to the Iranian writers. Find your core of honesty, you know. Don't put the food in your mouth like this. You know, just put it in there, you know. And that's, that's, you know, great fiction, great literature is simplicity. All of the great Iranian Persian writers knew that. All of the great prose writers knew that, and they did it. Yes? In fact, my question might not be much related, but as you mentioned, that Madinejad's name quite a few times, mm. and you tried to put him last in of the history. Yeah. I personally think it's not wrong to concentrate more on him, because I don't know how bright was the rumor. A few years ago, I got few messages from here and there that his first religion was not Islam. Oh, he I heard about that. From different religion, and his speeches were quite implementary in a very wrong time of the history of Iran, and it oh. really was quite damaging to the foreign policy yeah. of Iran. Yeah. So, uh, what do you think if there is more, you know, concentration and pause on him rather than throwing him? No, I don't want to concentrate on that guy. And if I see him face to face, I'm going to kick his ass. That's what I'm going to do. Well, <laughs> I don't want to focus on him at all. I'm not interested in. Intention behind the intention. That's yeah. why I was thinking that... No, and also, let's say... What say if there was different intention no. what he said. Yeah, even if, like, there was a rumor about him being of, you know, what a background. But so what? It's his actions that, that speak, right? And his actions damage Iran and Iranians, That's you know? That's what I meant, yeah. No, I don't want to give him the light of day. I don't want to give him and his people the light of day. And sometimes... The best thing to do is just ignore them. They, these guys, these guys thrive. They flourish on creating situations, on creating scenes where they're seen and they're uh, and they're uh, given their due on stage. I don't want to give him that. I know what I do to him in a face to face, but uh, I don't want to give him time of day. He's not an interesting man to me in any way. His history is not interesting to me. What he has to say is not interesting to me. And he really, really damaged Iranians and Iranian uh, uh, 
uh, Iran's place in the world for a long time. I can't say that you know he was just like a one lone wolf, you know, but but his uh, you know every way you look at it, every way you look at it. Again, it's that intellectual laziness to like. I remember I used to beg my friends, you know, intellectuals, you know, I said, go vote during the Khatami times, go vote. No, they're all the same. They're not all the same. They used to say, oh, let, let us vote for him, for let Ahmadinejad win, so, you know, we'll know where we stand. Well, you saw where you stood, you know, so I think, you know, I have so many issues with the interaction. I, I mentioned it in Tehran Noir. I have, I have deep, deep issues with um, Iranian intellectuals going back way before the revolution, way before the with the with the Iranian left, certainly with Hezbollah today, and it's inglorious history in Iran, and uh, oftentimes not always. And uh, these things need to be. Uh, these are the things that need to be talked about, need to be exploited. And Iranians need to, to be able to, Iranians like us, need to be able to sit down and talk to each other and agree to disagree, you know. But someone like Ahmadinejad, I'm, I'm not interested in him at all. Yes, sir. I think the happy idea of Salah Abdo punching Ahmadinejad <laughs> is a good place to end this <laughs> 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 of his books, the few copies that the library did not, the bookstore did not get enough, and he has kindly agreed to sign a few. Sure, uh, yeah, if, absolutely. Uh, so, please join us in uh, having a wonderful book. <laughs> Thank you.